Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for joining me for this first edition of the Teach the Whole Child podcast. My name is Steve Reifman. I'm a National Board Certified Elementary School teacher and author in Santa Monica, California. During my 24-year career, I've worked to create an approach that engages the whole child and empowers students to achieve academic excellence, build strong character, develop lasting work habits and social skills, and take charge of their health and wellness. In this podcast, I'll be sharing strategies, stories, tips, and resources that will help you inspire and empower your students and improve your teaching. In this episode, I'll begin by telling you a little bit about who I am, my approach to teaching the whole child, how it started and how it's developed over the years, and then I'll follow by sharing four ways that we can build a personal connection with our students. Let's start at the very beginning. I was born and raised in Los Angeles in the neighborhood of Westwood, and I grew up just a few blocks from UCLA. For college, I went back east to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, where I became a sociology major. During my final semester, I took a sociology of education course, and for the first time, I was reading about the history of education, current trends in education, I met people who were training to be teachers, and for the first time, I started thinking about becoming a teacher after I graduated. Um, I did apply to law school, and I was very close the following fall to going to Emory in Atlanta. And I was visiting a friend from high school who had started working in Atlanta for CNN. And I was planning to stay a few days, and I don't know what happened, but after just a day or so, a voice was speaking to me loudly in my mind, and it told me, go home, this isn't for you. Um, law school isn't your future. And thankfully, I listened to that voice and I consider it one of the best decisions I've ever made. I went back home and during that year, after graduating college, I did a bunch of part-time jobs as I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And my favorite job during that time was working as a teacher's aide at a local elementary school. I worked with two fifth grade classes and I did playground duty and I absolutely loved it. Um, I viewed it as just hanging out with the kids on the playground and meeting new friends of all ages and grades. And then in the classroom, one of the teachers um, knew that I was thinking about becoming a teacher, so she let me work with groups, she let me teach an occasional lesson, and in that class I met a student teacher from UCLA and her coordinator, and because of all of that, I decided to apply to UCLA for the following fall, and that's where my formal training um, to become a teacher started. The one-year teacher education program at UCLA that I attended was wonderful, and I consider myself fortunate to have had such um, thorough preparation for the demands of teaching. Plus, I was very happy to be back home, being able to study at UCLA, and as I was growing up, I'd always wanted to go there. And the fact that I could go there now for grad school was just tremendous. It was at UCLA where the first of what I consider some pivotal moments in my career occurred. One day, we were studying about classroom management, and that has always been an area of interest to me. But I was frustrated because all of the approaches that we seemed to be studying revolved around rewards and punishments, and I was never comfortable with that. So as I was learning these approaches and student teaching in schools where I saw them over and over again, I just felt that there had to be a better way. I felt that we needed to manage our classrooms as teachers in ways that didn't involve bribing students, that's how I viewed it, bribing students, 
to behave or work hard. I felt they should want to do those things and should be expected to do those things. Or I didn't think that we needed to rely on punishments to create an environment where the students would behave and work hard. So that set me off on a quest to find or um, create an approach that would allow me to be the kind of teacher that I wanted to be and create the kind of classroom environment that I wanted to create. The next pivotal moment I'd like to share with you occurred after I'd gotten hired for my first teaching job, teaching first grade. And like many teachers, I started an after-school course through a local university so I could earn units, so I could move up on the pay scale as quickly as possible. And one night, there was a principal from the Los Angeles Unified School District who gave a presentation. And at the end of the presentation, he gave some book recommendations, and I wrote them all down. And the first book that I read that he recommended was The Quality School by William Glasser. As I read the book, I realized that Glasser was describing many of the elements of the type of classroom that I wanted to create, the type that I wanted to create ever since my training program at UCLA, but I just didn't know how to go about doing it yet. He spoke about the importance of producing quality work and how producing quality work should feel good for students. They don't do it for a grade or for a prize. They do it because it feels good. And he spoke of the importance of continuous improvement. And if a student turns in a piece of work and it's not yet quality, then that's the mark they get. It is not yet quality. We ask them to go back and continue working on it. And by doing that, Glasser said that students would learn a lot more than if they just turned it in once and got a grade. The goal was always quality and the goal was always improvement in a way that felt good to students. In the quality school, Glasser refers frequently to a man named W. Edwards Deming. So after finishing Glasser's book, I then read, I think, three or four books about Deming and then a few written by him. Deming was trained in mathematics, physics, and engineering, and first gained notoriety working with the United States Census Bureau. But he's most well known for his work after World War II in Japan, where he's credited with leading perhaps the greatest economic turnaround in modern history. Before Deming's arrival in Japan, Japanese products had the reputation around the world of being of low quality. After Deming worked with Japanese business leaders for just a few years, these products were now the envy of the world. Deming's teachings would later become known as the 14 points of quality. And as I was reading about them in his books, I found myself underlining sentence after sentence after sentence. And even though he was writing for an audience of business leaders and not elementary educators, I felt as if he was speaking directly to me because he was writing about groups of people working together with common purpose, finding meaning and joy in what they're doing, taking pride in their work, improving continuously, and focusing on producing quality. A few years later, I would go on to write a book called Eight Essentials for Empowered Teaching and Learning, which is an application of Deming's 14 points of quality to elementary school teaching. And it's meant as a tribute to Deming because I consider him the most influential person um, on my teaching career. In addition to Glasser's and Deming's work, in the first couple years of my career, I also read books by Alfie Cohn, who's Punished by Rewards, very much helped influence my thinking about how to create a classroom that avoids the pitfalls of extrinsic motivation and instead promotes the nurturing of the intrinsic motivation that all students um, possess and bring with them to school. 
Also, Dale Parnell's book, Why Do I Have to Learn This? helped me understand how we can help kids better understand the purposes of attending school and working hard each day. And Theodore Sizer's Horse Trilogy helped me understand the importance of habits and how one of the most important goals for teachers is to help kids develop lasting habits, both habits of mind and habits of character. And I consider myself unbelievably fortunate to have read these authors back to back to back to back within the first couple of years of my career. I simply cannot imagine what the trajectory of my career would have been had I not encountered these ideas very early in my career at the same time. And after I read them for the next few years, every week when I would sit down to do my lesson planning, it's like I envisioned all of these authors sitting around the table with me. And as I planned everything, I wanted to make sure that what I was doing would be in keeping with all of their suggestions and with all of their teachings. And if all of them kind of gave me their approval, then I knew I was on the right path because these um, authors and their ideas meant so much to me and were so influential um, during the beginning parts of my career and remain influential to this day. There are a few other important things I'd like to share regarding my development as an educator before we move to the next part of the podcast. I feel it's very important that we as teachers take advantage of our summer vacation to learn new things so that we can continuously improve our teaching practice year after year. I once read that Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls would use his offseason to analyze his game, figure out which parts were not as good as others, and then work on them throughout the summer. So maybe one summer he would work on his shooting, one summer he'd work on his ball handling, And over time, he would just get better and better and better. I've tried to do this throughout the years. And after spending a lot of time learning about the ideas of um, Glasser and Deming and the other authors that I mentioned, my interest then turned to recent brain research that I discovered and its implications for improving student learning. And I became fascinated with activities that involved movement, music, and storytelling. And for a few years, I would try to gather create or adapt as many activities as I could that help kids learn through those three approaches. And eventually it led to the creation of my book, Rocket. Um, After that, I've developed interest in mindfulness, educational technology, and it's just wonderful knowing that there is so much out there for us elementary school teachers that if we apply ourselves um, for part of each summer, we can continue to get better and better throughout our careers. Let's move to the next part of the podcast in which I'd like to share four ways that we can build strong personal connections with our students. The first is what I call giving each student their own thing. Now, what does thing mean? It could be a nickname, a job, a private joke, a signal, or a gesture. Now, why do we do these things? Well, first, they put smiles on kids' faces. They're usually very lighthearted and fun and kids enjoy them very much. It also guarantees each child a personal form of attention from the teacher. And they also produce powerful bonding moments. And sometimes my favorite parts of each day come from these things that I give each child. Let me share a few examples of these things with you. A few years ago, I had a student in my class named Dylan who's just a fantastic person and fantastic student, but every once in a while, he would rest his head on his desk during independent work time and take a little break. And I was trying to help him develop more consistent focus. So he and I came up with a plan. 
I would, from the front of the room in my chair where I would sit, I would whisper his name. I didn't want to disturb anybody else. He would look up. I would pretend to throw him an invisible energy bar. He would pretend to grab it and eat it. And then he'd go right back to work and he was fine for the rest of the period. Might be silly, but it's something that he enjoyed. It worked and that became his thing. Another example um, occurred with a student that I had in my class who had difficulty paying attention throughout an entire instructional lesson. And she sat right in the front row. Her attention would drift as I was talking. So I called her over one day and I said that I'd like to give her a nickname. And would it be okay with you? And she said, yes, it was. So the nickname that I wanted to give her was Spark because that was part of the identity that I wanted her to develop in class. I wanted her to have a more active, energetic approach during these lessons. So she liked that idea. So from that point on, did it cure everything? No, but did it make things better? Yes, her attention definitely improved with her new nickname. And plus it made things easier for both of us because sometimes um, student behavior can be a bit frustrating. And if I'm talking to her about her difficulties with attention, it's much easier to do that when I'm calling her Spark because it just lightens the mood when I am doing that. Um, these things don't have to be anything fancy. Sometimes kids just love coming in five minutes before the bell on the morning and sharpening pencils. It might not mean that much to us, but it means a lot to them because it could be one of the only times that they are recognized for a positive contribution that they are making. So anything that we can do to give kids personal um, positive attention can go a long way. Plus, many parents love it when they feel like the teacher's paying a little bit closer attention to their child or giving their child special attention. We can do that with everybody so that everybody can experience the joy of feeling that the teacher notices them and treats them in a way that's special. A second way that we can give students personal attention and make a personal connection with them is by having a weekly student leader. Now, Ours is basically the student of the week that you see in many classes, but I had some leadership responsibilities to the job and we call it student leader. Every Friday, right before recess, I pick up the plastic cup with popsicle sticks with all the kids' names and whichever stick I draw, that person will be the student leader for the following week. So one week, I picked the stick of a girl named Gracie. Gracie came up to the front of the room, everybody applauded. And right before recess, just as a throwaway joke, because Gracie would always wear a flower in her hair, I said that everybody needed to come to school next week wearing a flower in their hair as her tribute to Gracie. And I forgot all about it. Next Monday, everybody walks in the room, and I noticed that six or seven kids had flowers in their hair. And you should have seen the look on Gracie's face when she saw that. She was just so surprised and so full of joy because people took the time to give her that special type of recognition. And that became something that spread. So each week when we picked a student leader, we would find a way to honor that student in a way that was very simple, but that meant a lot to them. So the next week, I picked the stick of a boy named Tanyan. Now Tanyan, unlike Gracie, did not routinely wear a flower in his hair. So we needed to come up with something else. And I remember saying, Tanyan, we'd like to honor you. Um, what do you think, what can we do? And he thought for a minute and he said, well, I like to wear blue shirts. So then the following week, many kids showed up wearing blue shirts. So this became something that, um, again, spread in our class. And it's something that I like to do 
because it's a very easy yet powerful way to make a special connection with the kids, give them special attention, and make them feel really great about themselves and about the class as a whole. Third, we can create for our students or allow them to create for themselves something that I call a personalized motivational visual. And I first did this a few years ago with a student who was having a very difficult time in class. And he was very quiet and I didn't feel like I was connecting with him. But one thing I knew about him was that he loved football and his favorite player was Marshawn Lynch who then played for the Seattle Seahawks. Now when Lynch is going strong in a game, he's in something called beast mode where he's very difficult to tackle. So my idea was to create a visual for this student where I would have Marshawn Lynch's picture on the left, a picture of him on the right, I'd have their names under the picture, I'd have the Seahawks logo on top of Lynch's picture, and I'd have our team name on top of ours with the name Beast Mode at the top center. My hope was that by having him see himself side by side with his favorite player would inspire and motivate him. And I was nervous the morning that I was going to present it to him because again, he was really quiet. I didn't know how he was going to react. So I gave it to him and he seemed to like it, but it wasn't a huge reaction. But one thing I did notice was that throughout the day, anytime he would move to a different desk in the room to do his work, he would take the visual with him. And at the end of the day, um, his desk, which was usually not neat at all, he would have things coming out of his desk, things were not usually neatly arranged. He would always make sure that the visual was front and center, um, beautifully aligned before he left. So those things told me that it did mean something to him. And as I said, um, with the example of the student Spark, did it cure everything? No, but did it help me make a special connection with him and did it begin to improve things? Yes, it did. Now, once other kids saw his visual, they wanted me to make one for them or they wanted to bring one in themselves, which is wonderful. It's very hard to make 30 for the kids if you have 30 students, because that takes a lot of time. So if kids love their pets and they want to bring a picture of their dog and put it on their desk, as long as it's not a distraction, I think it's great. So we can encourage the kids to bring in or we can make a personalized visual for them that will be motivating and inspiring. And through that, we can, little, we can learn a little bit more about what, um, what makes them tick, what they're interested in. And through that, we can form a special bond with everybody. The fourth and final idea I'd like to share with you today involves an icebreaker that we do every year on the first day of school, and it's called the Passion Survey. The sheet itself is very simple. It has four squares, and on the sheet, the kids write their four very favorite things to do in the world, or their four favorite hobbies or interests or passions, and then they draw themselves doing it. So one student's paper, for example, might show football, art, reading, and science. Once the kids finish their papers, I create a chart which we keep attached to the closet door in the back of the room. And it shows all the kids' names down the left. It shows the list of passions along the top. And then I put an X or a check um, showing which students are passionate about which topics. Now the reason we do this is so that when the kids have project choices to make, I encourage them to make choices connected to their passions because they'll be more motivated to do it and I think they'll do better work. It can also strengthen or lead to the creation of friendships because if kids discover that they share a passion with somebody else, maybe they become friends, maybe they have playdates after school or they spend time 
doing these passions together. It's also great for the kids who might not have yet discovered their passions when they see other kids writing about them and talking about them and thinking about them, that will help them find their own, or that's the hope. But for the purposes of um, the podcast today, the passion survey is also great because it helps us bond with the kids and we can make a personal connection with them because if we discover that we share an interest with them, that's something we can talk about when we see them before school or after school or recess, and it can lead to a special bond. And if there's ever a situation where we look at a paper and we see the kids' four passions and we don't share any of them, then we can take an interest in it and perhaps learn something new. I had a student this past year who was an avid sailor and is training to be in the Olympics in 2028. Now, I know nothing about sailing apart from what I learned from watching Wedding Crashers over and over and over and over again. But by talking to her and taking an interest in her endeavor, I'm learning about sailing and it's something that we love talking about together and it strengthens the connection that we have. So by using these passions, we can um, bond with our kids by talking about things that they're very interested in. And again, it's another way of providing special attention to them. We have reached the end of today's podcast. Thank you again for joining me. I hope you found the information interesting and useful. If you would like to reach out, I am always happy to connect on my website, stevereefman.com. There is a place where you can email me. I am on Twitter, at Steve Reefman, and I have a Facebook page called the Teaching the Whole Child Facebook page. Thanks.